Philemon is a very special book in the Bible. Uh, it's a personal letter from Paul to his friend Philemon, who was a leader, maybe a small group leader, uh, in the church at Colossae. The church, or maybe part of it, used to meet in his own home. That's the way churches were in those days. Paul also wrote a letter to the whole of the church at Colossae at the same time, which we know as Colossians, of course. Paul was in prison. We can't be absolutely sure where, but the best evidence suggests he was in Rome, uh, where we know from the end of the book of Acts that he was detained under a kind of house arrest. So he had quite a bit of freedom, and his friends could come and go to provide for his needs, do his shopping, run other errands. Uh, For the Scottish people among us, do the messages, run the messages. But why was Paul in prison? In the opening verse, he says he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And in verse 13, he was in chains for the gospel. It's not working. Can you click it up for me, please? Okay, one more. Thanks. He was in chains for the gospel. If he was... Oh, we've gone too far now, sorry. Thanks. One more. No, we've, we've skipped something. Go, go back to the previous slide. Okay, I don't know which slide we're on, actually. No, we need to go back a slide. Isn't there one in between those? That's the first one. Where's the second one's not up yet. We did have the second because it was the one about Paul being in prison. Click again. Okay, back to me. Thank you. (sighs) That little interlude, you can concentrate again now. (laughs) Sorry about that. So Paul was in chains for the gospel. If he was at Rome, uh, we know the story because the events that led to his arrival and detention there are recorded for us in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts. How in Jerusalem he was rescued by a Roman centurion from an angry Jewish mob who saw red when he mentioned his ministry to the Gentiles. That was anathema to those Jews. And as I say, you can read all about that in Acts 22 and to the end of the book. The rest of the book of Acts is taken up, really, about how Paul eventually ended up in Rome. And it's an interesting and exciting story. Uh, But the bottom line is the fact that he was in prison because of his faithfulness to God. Calling, faithfulness to God's calling on his life. uh, Which was to take the good news about Jesus to the Gentile world. It might seem strange that God should allow Paul, his faithful servant to suffer as he did. And there's more about his sufferings in those last seven chapters of the book of Acts as well as elsewhere in the New Testament. 
particularly Second Corinthians. But, but what I want us to see this morning is the fact that just because we're Christians, life isn't necessarily going to be a lot easier. Indeed, it might be a lot harder. We often think and pray about Christians who live in countries uh, where the Christian faith is marginalized or where Christians are openly persecuted. It's often a very cynical thing because many of those countries claim to have religious freedom and they don't. But if you become a Christian and you were, say, a Muslim or a Hindu in certain countries, you may well find your life is in danger. Yours and your family, especially in places like North Korea where it's not a change of religion but it's an openness of Uh, claiming Christ as your saviour. But why would God allow that to happen to those who have placed their lives in his hands? And I think it's a very good question. We'll come back to it, really. Uh, But let's think about the situation that brought about Paul's writing to Philemon. The reason that Paul had met, the reason was that Paul had met a man called Onesimus. Here we go again. In Rome or wherever he was. More likely Rome because that's where many runaway slaves headed for. Onesimus, whose name incidentally means useful. So there's a play on words there. I don't know whether you noticed it as we had the Bible reading. Onesimus means useful. And it's a big joke because he was useless to Philemon, his owner. Not only had he run away from his slavery in Philemon's house, but it also seems that he had helped himself to some of Philemon's property. And that's why Paul says in verse 18, if he, has done any, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I think it's fairly certain that he'd helped himself to something or other. Admittedly, there are some odd features about this, this whole situation. Roman law was very harsh on slaves. They were regarded as the property, the goods and chattels of their owners. And runaway slaves were regularly executed when found and arrested. This is the background to the Spartacus story, which happened many, many years before that. And Rome was full of disaffected slaves, many of whom banded together into informal militia or got employed as mercenaries. But in God's providence, Onesimus bumped into Paul. We don't know how, but somehow he escaped the bounty hunters and instead found Paul. Maybe he was arrested and placed uh, with Paul in prison, Maybe because of the favour Paul earned for him, uh, had earned for himself, Paul himself, uh, he was able to put in a good word and persuade the authorities to let him take responsibility for Onesimus because he knew his master, actually. We don't know, and it's probably not too helpful to speculate. But clearly, this was God's hand on this young man's life because not only did he come under the protection of Paul, But he became a believer in Jesus, just like his master at home. The home he had fled from was a Christian home. It's ironic, isn't it? Uh, But ironically, he didn't catch the gospel at home. So we've got these three characters in this little drama. There's Paul suffering for being a faithful Christian missionary. There's Onesimus who felt he had to get away from his slavery. And there's Philemon who lost a valuable slave and probably some of his property to boot. Three people, three different kinds of loss. But God was at work in all of this. All right, sorry, I'm ahead of myself. 
And that's the lesson I think we need to take on board today as we look at our own lives and perhaps wonder why this, or whatever this is, is happening to me. Lots of good came out of this situation. Paul was blessed by his new useful companion. He describes Onesimus as his son. We would take that to mean that Paul had become his spiritual father. In other words, he had led him to Christ. Paul describes himself as an old man, which again points to Rome as the place where all this action was taking place later on in Paul's life. But God had provided him with a helper. He says, my very heart, he calls him. And he was just a little bit loath to send him back to Colossae, but I think he knew he must. Furthermore, Onesimus' life was saved from the consequences of his actions. And now he had the prospect of returning to his owner, not now as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. I've got that. I'm not sure where I am now. But they were taking a bit of a risk there, weren't they? Paul was depending on the genuineness of Philemon's Christianity and that he would realise that, no, that he could no longer treat Onesimus as he, as he had formerly treated him. Not that he necessarily treated him badly, but we don't know. But now that Onesimus was a Christian brother, and here Paul was leaning on, on him just a little bit, what choice did he have? I wonder whether any of us ever find ourselves in situations where we are forced to do the Christian thing, when if others weren't watching us closely, we might not. I hope not. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, okay? So relax. But there are other blessings too. The fact that we have this short personal letter in our Bibles. If Philemon hadn't done what Paul wanted him to do, I don't expect this letter would have seen the light of day let alone be widely circulated among the churches of the day so that it found its way eventually into the body of Paul's writings and was included in the New Testament. But there's also Colossians. I mentioned that earlier. Whoops, we've got... Seems to have a mind of its own. Whether Paul could have written... would have written Colossians if he hadn't also written Philemon is a moot point, we'll never know, but I reckon that was an additional incentive and what a blessing Colossians has been to the wider church throughout the centuries. But there's more and personally I think we owe Ephesians to this same situation. At the end of Colossians in chapter 4 verse 16 Paul says this, he says after this letter has been read to you, that's after Colossians has been read to you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. But we don't have a letter to Laodicea, do we? Not by Paul anyway. There's one in the book of Revelation. Uh, But could there be a Laodicean letter that we haven't recognized? I think the answer is yes. It's widely believed among New Testament scholars that uh, Ephesians wasn't just written to the church at Ephesus but it was a kind of circular letter, an encyclical, if you like. Copies of which went to a number of churches in the region of Asia Minor, in the uh, Roman Asia, that is, and its hinterland. Some of the oldest manuscripts of Ephesians don't actually have a place name in the first verse of the letter. Our Bibles say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful 
in Christ Jesus. But there are copies around uh, in Greek which just don't have the name of the city Ephesus. And the theory is that the name of each recipient church was inserted by the courier, Tychicus, who carried Colossians and presumably carried Philemon too, although we're not told so explicitly. And I think the letter to the Laodiceans is the same as Ephesians. It's just that no copies to, uh, with to Laodicea have survived. There are many parallels between Ephesians and Colossians, if you care to do the comparison. And there are also one or two instances in Ephesians where Paul seems not to be too familiar with his readers, which is strange. Some people think that constitutes evidence that Paul didn't write Ephesians. I would beg to differ, uh, because he clearly did know Ephesians, uh, and Ephesus, sorry. He did know Ephesus and the church very well indeed. He'd spent a long time there. Hence, he had only heard about their faith in Ephesians 1.15. And he assumes that they had heard about his calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles in chapter 3, verse 2, and so on. And there are no specific Ephesian references, which to me seems strange since, as I said, he spent a lot of time in and around Ephesus earlier on in his career. What I'm saying is that because Onesimus ran away and met Paul, not only Paul, but Onesimus and Philemon received gate blessings, but we too, as we have these three letters from the great apostle, all written about the same time and reflecting the same kind of situation. Got it. All because Onesimus ran away. And this is the way God operates. I know there is a strand of Christian teaching that says that if you please God in your life, you will prosper, be healthy, wealthy and wise, so-called prosperity teaching, and it's eyewash at least on the basis of all that we read about in the New Testament, especially as we read about the ups and downs in Paul's life. It's actually a confusion of the promises to Israel under the Old Covenant, uh, which were for the life in the Promised Land. We have the promises of a heavenly city, not an earthly territory. And as, and as for this life, we receive the, mixed, the mix of buffets and, car, uh, and calms that everyone else receives but with the knowledge that the ultimate good will come when Christ returns. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and and the verses following, Paul writes these words. Where did that balloon come from? Oh, yeah. Come on. Here we are. He writes these words. Let me read them to you. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I know that some of you here today are finding life tough. Or certain aspects of life. And I know that's true because it's the common lot of all God's people. And if there's something, if if your life is all plain sailing, well it makes me wonder. Indeed some are probably not even here this morning or won't be here at the later service. 
because it's true for them. They just bowed down. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus promises as much. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. This is what I call the small print of the gospel. Let me just put that up. I've done it. Okay. When you come to Jesus and put your life and trust in his hands, when you become a Christian, you will immediately receive God's forgiveness for all the wrong you have ever committed or will ever commit. You will know a new peace in your heart. You may receive healing in all kinds of different ways. There are lots of blessings connected with becoming a Christian. You will find yourself part of a new community where you, will, where you can find love and fellowship and acceptance, friendship, all kinds of benefits of belonging to church. But the essential blessing of becoming a Christian is that you get saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal lostness without God. In any shape or form. And everlasting hopelessness and torment which you will spend in the company of the devil and his demonic hosts. When we preach the gospel, we're usually very good at saying all of that. But what we tend to understate is the reality of living the Christian life in a hostile world where the devil is very active and where Christians are fair game for those who hate Jesus. There will be trouble for all of us now that we're God's redeemed people. But never forget what Jesus goes on to say. Take heart. I have overcome the world. We've seen how God turned some potentially very bad situations in the lives of Paul and Esimus and Philemon into good. Indeed, greater blessings for others that any of them could have imagined, and the same is true for us today. I don't know what your particular burden is. Some of you I do know a little bit about. I'm getting to know you better. But this may seem cold comfort, especially as often all we can say to one another is, brother, sister, I will pray for you. Sometimes we can help in practical ways, especially if the need is financial or or maybe medical. But as a bunch of God's people, we are traveling together, pilgrims on a narrow road, through what is in reality a bleak landscape, spiritually. But we need each other for this journey. Uh, And what we need most of all is the promise of God that there is good to come. We need a vision ahead of us. It may be in this life as it was in some measure for Onesimus, Philemon and Paul. It's about being predestined to be like Jesus. It's about sharing his righteousness and his glory. But not yet. At least not completely yet. A few verses before this great promise in verse 28, Paul says this in verses 17 and 18. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory. That will be revealed in us. Isn't that amazing? Brother, sister, I can pray for you. You can receive prayer today. There's an opportunity at the back of the room for prayer today. But what encourages me more than anything is the knowledge that no matter what rubbish I have to put up with in my life, no matter how much I let God and others down, there is in store for me 
the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Of course there are compensations in the Christian life. There is joy to be experienced in the here and now, especially as we share fellowship with one another. But the greatest good, the greatest joy is yet to come. God is molding your life and mine so that he can use us and do good works through us for other people. The trick, that's not the wrong word, is to seek out what God is trying to do in and through us as we suffer. The way we react and respond to trials will determine how quickly we become like Jesus. That's what we're predestined to. That's God's plan for all of our lives, both in this present life and in the life to come. Don't talk to me about God's plan for my life. I'm not into that. As though he had a particular path mapped out for me and for you. I'm not into that. I don't believe it. The New Testament says that the only plan God has for my life and yours is that we become like him, like our creator. Be encouraged. You may feel that God has abandoned you, but he hasn't. He isn't unaware of what you're going through. But he does want you to trust him, despite everything. And as Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, that will be revealed in us. May that be your experience and your testimony. And may it be mine to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.